Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Ganbei. Uh, my name is Art Dicker, I'm the host. I'm joined today by Momo Estrella. Welcome, Momo, we're so excited to have you. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. Um, very nice to be here. Let's talk a little bit for people at home about mm -hmm. um, design, mm -hmm. what, it, what it is, because um, I think maybe people don't have the same idea of, of uh, when you right. talk about design what you mean by that. Can you explain a little bit? Sure, sure. And I think uh, it's a great question because it, the concept of design has changed quite radically, mm -hmm. e e even in me, right, through my career. Um, you can think of design uh, in a range of, of, of things, from design being a form of expression mm -hmm. uh, and design being a tool to solve problems. Mm -hmm. There's an entire range of disciplines and, and practices that naturally fit in this place. Now, that doesn't mean that you cannot solve problems with art, or you cannot create art with, I don't know, uh, engineering or code, right? It just means that there are disciplines that live naturally in this spectrum. Um, and then you have another axis, maybe, where you can use design to solve problems for people, or you can use design to, to help brands. Mm -hmm. So in these quadrants, then you can populate companies and you know potential work relationships and projects and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so design, to me, has become this more holistic view uh, that is essentially I guess a, a tool to demonstrate possibilities. Mm. Um, generally, I'm guided by these two principles that the, the future sits in designers' capacity to imagine, mm -hmm. uh, but it also sits in the bravery that, that, that humanity has to, to embark on these things. And I think design is a nice combination of those things. It allows me to explore and visualize possibilities and encourage people to to, to try to understand the future and respond to that. Right? So it's a very large, broad definition. Um, but within that, you have the granular details of uh, the practice of design, which is, say, interaction design, mm -hmm. which looks after the relationship between people and things. Mm -hmm. So there could be an interaction between me and an audio capturing device, whether there's a device in between us or whether there's a new device to design. Um, then you have other practices like industrial design or product mm. design which looks after the creation of an object like this. Mm. Um, then you may have things like uh, service design mm -hmm. that may be looking at what is the platform where this recording is going to go and mm. what are the multiple touch points that this platform has. Mm -hmm. Or you may look into business design which is actually what's the system of value creation of this platform in regards to everything else. Um, and then you may have other disciplines like communication design and venture design and so on. But it's interesting that you said it's that it's basically, um, it's it's almost like you guys are your creativity and imagination is leading us into the future, designing things maybe that we don't even know we need yet. Right? Mm -hmm. like look at mm -hmm. some of the, the products that Apple's designed early on. Right? Nobody mm -hmm. thought mm -hmm. for an iPod, for example. Right. Right. Um, but it's not just about um, physical products. You say it's, it's about experiences mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've read up about you guys is um, you you seem at the core to be known for kind of human-centered design. Exactly. That, that defines how, how you design. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about, a bit about that? Yeah. Our service is based on observation. I mm -hmm. guess observation of, of people's behaviors mm -hmm. and uncovering the latent needs. Right? Mm -hmm. Only then I think we can uh, then develop like, um, I guess, in a new development models. We can elevate brands through product, service, experiences, uh, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but at, at the core, I think we help companies to innovate and grow um, not only through the service we provide, but also by creating the right capabilities in them. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this can only be true if we use what we call human-centered uh, design. Mm -hmm. 
it, mm -hmm. it's it's an approach that puts people at the center of everything. Mm -hmm. um, for example, um, at this very moment, what we're talking, right? There are hundreds of thousands of decisions being taken by designers, mm -hmm. and those decisions, whether it is on color, material, or finishing, or I don't know the the user flow or the UX of something. There's a lot of decisions that will inevitably have a ripple effect on 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 what they do to people, mm -hmm. what they do to a business, or what they do to society. Uh, when you think of human-centered design, you are essentially considering um, the latent needs of people. Right? You're 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 putting a lot of attention into what people say, what people do, what people think, how people respond to things, mm -hmm. and then you try to extract those learnings and 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 create. Um, I guess a, an answer, a response to those things through design. Um, we have a few examples where, uh, if you notice, we have designed, for example, products that are meant to be held with one hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know it's such a simple principle, but they are meant to be used with one hand because they are in the hand of a nurse. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of medical devices that are quite complex, mm -hmm. but the simplest ones uh, are often the ones that help. I guess doctors or, or, or nurses or physicians be more efficient, for example, mm, mm -hmm. uh, because that in the end will inevitably serve a patient better. Mm. And there's a lot of examples across, I don't know, education or across technology, across, mm. uh, I don't know, uh, the pharma industry and so on, where we have used that human-centered lens to help us understand better what are the latent needs that we can identify in people and then identify the right opportunities to respond to those. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about China in particular. Mm -hmm. um, we know China is fast. Yeah. So things move fast, people move fast, things develop fast, new yeah. products come out fast. What kind of challenges does that speed in China present for you as a designer? Um, I think it comes with two sides, right? There's a lot of challenges to it. I think our ability to respond to change. Um, is, is being challenged in a way in China in general for all of us, I guess, mm. at, a, at, a, at an individual level, at an organizational level and so on. But at the same time, the bright side of that is that China is actually a very, very fertile ground for innovation. Mm -hmm. I think the speed of things is, is, is a consequence of, of how experimental China is. And I think that's a good thing. Um, most, I guess, outsiders' perspective tends to have this memory muscle of what China used to behave like, <laughs> commercially at least, right. a few years ago, right? Yeah. Um, where it was you know, manufacturing support for the rest of the world, or it was, uh, I don't know, the origin of copycats or low-cost labor and so on. Now, yeah. some of those things kind of hold true, uh, but if you look at those things in isolation, we have, we have, we have seen the change from uh, a country that used to look to the sides and, and figure out what, what is everybody else doing let's just right. do a version of that right to now being almost ahead of many others yeah and now not having a reference on the sides and being like what do we do now right. so the kind of questions and challenges that china is having are, are brand new in a way um and that's where i think speed and, and the ability to be relatively nimble in how you approach a solution is quite uh, useful for china mm. for chinese companies um more specifically, challenges for design in, in fast environments um, is typically more than a challenge, is an opportunity, I think, to very quickly test uh, concepts or provoke mm. um, reactions. Um, 
where, for example, we may be able to get, uh, say, quantitative results of uh, testing concepts much faster than we would do in other markets, mm. um, simply because of the population density or because mm. of the access. Because everything is so interconnected, it's relatively easy to deploy things and, and right. get learnings from that. Um, but at the same time, it's because China has this, I don't want to say tolerance, but this acceptance for things that are on the way. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's like a constantly in beta mode that, that, is, <laughs> that is accepted. Yeah. And I think that's great for innovation because nobody, nobody gets it right, right? Nobody mm -hmm. gets it perfect the first time. Um, and if you look at everything from, say, Mobike, the first Mobikes right. were like bulky, heavy, solid, and they were built for durability. And people were okay with that. The seats could not go up or down. So it was uncomfortable to ride. Yeah. Um, but then you could see how they could iteratively improve the bicycles. And those yeah. were uh, decisions that were taken uh, on the product. You could see the decision reflected on the product. But those were strategic decisions being reflected in how the product was being made. Yeah. Right? Where it was no longer about durability. But it was more about uh, growth. How do, we how, do, how do we put as many bikes as we can out there? Right. Uh, where are the maybe compromises we can make? What are the new things we can we can add to it? Um, I don't think there's another place in the world, maybe personally, this is my, my view, that has the conditions that China has to help small companies go that large that quick. Yeah, and maybe sometimes just burn after a few years. But <laughs> that explosive growth is something that you wouldn't see anywhere else. People ask. How did Mobike start in China? You know, mm. why, why did it start somewhere else? And I think it could only have started in China because yeah. if you look at the way people use mobile and QR codes and scanning mm. and the densities and, the, and all of that, people still used to be being used to riding bikes here, mm -hmm. right? It's not mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. so long ago. China's changed so fast, so some products like that were perfect to be designed in China yeah. and then exported out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you see other, uh, do you, you, you mentioned it, more and more design concepts being exported out and are they being exported by firms like you or are they the companies themselves innovating and taking their designs out of China? Um, I think there are two sides to that question. So one is the uh, what China is exporting now as, as something that is um, created in China, not just made in China manufactured mm -hmm. here, but designed, created here and being exported. Um, and the other side, I guess, is the origin of that design. So for the first part, I think you get companies say like Xiaomi that that, that 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 is doing a great job I think at understanding what is the visual language of of contemporary home appliances for example mm -hmm. uh, or contemporary technology in general I think if you look at their visual language it's quite consistent although they they do work a lot with ODM they do work a lot with like third-party uh, designers um, they do have I would say design ownership of that language um, and I think it's a great example of how th underneath that their ambition is actually to create ecosystems, right? mm -hmm. it, an ecosystem of products that can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. There's a digital conversation happening between your vacuum cleaner and your phone or mm -hmm. your purifier and we may not be aware of those conversations but those are creating a lifestyle that are, is, is, is supporting modern needs. And eventually they may not need us anymore to yeah, do exactly. anything, they right? Just yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's, that's one side. The other side I guess is the origin of that design. Uh, I personally feel that design in China has evolved so quick and so fast in terms of, uh, um, I think the advantage of China is, is, is 
it's its volume, I guess, and yeah. its density. It allows people to really understand the broad spectrum of, uh, I guess, uh, design languages you can apply to the same mm. product or the same solution. And and it's such a diverse place that you know it's one country, but it's like it's like a continent. Mm -hmm. Like each region, each province, each demographic even behaves in in completely different ways mm. uh, from a design perspective. And I think that that has allowed China to be very experimental and to push its edges to, to places that uh, it's quite inspiring, to be honest, as a designer, mm. to see where China is taking things. There's good and there's bad examples, of course. I could talk about the bad examples too, but I'm going <laughs> to... We'll stay in the positive We'll side. stay in the positive <laughs> side. <laughs> that, um, you and I talked about a little bit before the show. Um, you're um, really interested uh, in China for mm -hmm. kind of, I would call it like the generational change that we're mm -hmm. witnessing mm -hmm. and the fact that this new generation of people is very different from their parents' generation mm -hmm. um, on sort of the, the competitiveness, um, the environment that they're born into. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd lo love if you could talk a little more about that. Sure, sure. Um, if you think of, um, uh, I guess, a traditional configuration of a Chinese family, it's quite interesting to me, and, and it, to be honest, it, it resembles quite a bit where I came from in Ecuador. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's a child, uh, and there's two parents, and there's four grandparents looking mm -hmm. after the same person. Um, because of the single child policy, obviously, that was uh, amplified, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the nurturing, the caring environment was, uh, was a lot more extreme than in my country, right, where I came from. But what is interesting is how competitively wired, like the new generation is. Um, they are born and dropped off already to like a rapid ascent. <laughs> um, and they... They're born already running. Basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and I think that's that's very empowering. That's very inspiring. It's It worries me a little bit because I don't know enough about it, if I'm honest, but it's exciting to know that there are challenges that we haven't foreseen yet that, mm. that this, this younger generation will have to tackle. Mm. Um, and a lot of them are exhibiting signals that they are worried about different things. That's, well, that's why I feel like a lot of brands are struggling with this demographic, right? As mm -hmm. soon as they start thinking about generations and the categories that they use, they start realizing that this younger generation cares less about the things that brands think they care, mm -hmm. right? When their behaviors and their relationship with products and services or even different categories uh, is very different and is driven by different things. Mm. Uh, so say, for example, behaviors around luxury. In the past, behaviors around luxury were very different from what we see now in younger generations. Younger generations are more trying to use products or services as an extension of, of the things that they care about, mm -hmm. or the things that they believe in. So it's not so much of, uh, uh, I guess, of a show-off kind of game. I think now it's more about almost like a selective signaling, with like a micro communities of people that understand me because they can see that I'm wearing this specific shoe that nobody, mm -hmm. not everybody in the room needs to know. Not everybody in the, in the room understands what I'm wearing, but people who care about the things I care, they will understand what I'm wearing. Um, or maybe if you're wearing like a cashmere sweater mm -hmm. that is like very understated and has no brand, it will, be, it will be signaling to other people that care about the same things you care. That kind of uh, kind of non-verbal form of communication is becoming quite important for younger generations. But it's 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 so complicated. It's harder for people like you and me who are a little older to 
to wrap yeah. our heads around yeah. and it's changing so fast. Yeah. So how do you design? How do you right. how do you test for right. a a product so that you know it's not just going to flop? I mean, yeah. whether it's a lot, let's let's pick a, a, a maybe a specific example right. or as specific as you can get. Right. Let's say a luxury product or something like right. that. Right. Right. Um, so there, there's a there's a few dimensions say to luxury for example that are universally true um, when you think of luxury products you have um, three three elements you have the functionalism mm -hmm. of a product you um, you have the experientialism which is how you experience the product right? mm -hmm. um, and the third one is the symbolic interaction mm -hmm. you have with it and this is universal. This is here, and this is like I don't know, Houston. And this is like in Munich, uh, and in Ecuador, like three, you know, four extreme different places. And this is true for all luxury. I think it's almost universally. Um, I guess what's different here, uh, if I take say, and as an example, um, if I take say like personal care. Mm -hmm. Like personal care products, mm -hmm. whether it's skincare or like grooming and whatnot. Um, luxury typically anchors on the fact that there's scarcity, there's not mm -hmm. enough of it, mm -hmm. and not everybody has access to it right. because of either, either the limitations you impose, either through pricing or through communication channels or whatnot. Uh, there's an element of exclusivity to it. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing lately is that that's not necessarily working for younger generations. Uh, the last thing that younger generations want is to feel that they're being alienated or being denied the access to things. Okay. Uh, and the fact that you're positioning something as not everybody has the chance to use it is, is actually causing the opposite effect. Hmm. But when that's I'm just young. so counterintuitive to probably like you and me, right? That mm -hmm. we were not born to think that yeah. way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're not groomed to think that I way. I see like there's not enough of this. This is luxury yes, mug. I like, want I'll it. take this. I mug. want it. Yes, it's, it's mine. mine. <laughs> um, but I think now underneath that, and this is just based on entirely mm -hmm. like my observations, like uh, to be honest, I haven't done like deep dive luxury projects or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of this comes from, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a lot, there's a, that's a much more emotional and intellectual thing going on with the younger generation um, that I think we may be, we may be not taking the right time to understand and just responding to that in, mm -hmm. in different ways, whether mm -hmm. it's by trying to create different things for them that we assume are going to be helpful, or mm. we assume they need or they want, but they don't really. Um, um, one of the, um, I, I joke that um, oftentimes when, when lawyers um, walk around, you know, we see, let's say, like a scaffolding or something, something that's not properly quarantined off from the general public, especially right. here in China, and I just think, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. I can't shut that part of my brain off. That's oh, my train. I love this question. So, as a designer, you must see things that are you, you instantly see are broken and want to fix it. I need to fix this. I need to fix that. Is it, am I oversimplifying That's it? That's such a great point. Yeah. No, I love that you mentioned this. Uh, Can you shut it off? <laughs> I, I cannot. I cannot. And it's interesting. Like, if you go watch a movie... Yeah. with, say, uh, a writer, um, a sound producer, mm -hmm. and an actor. At the end of the movie, all of you are going to have a completely different 
experience, I guess, to share with each mm -hmm. other what the movie was about. Like the actor maybe picking on different things, if you work with a writer, maybe picking on character development and dialogues and, and, and the story and whatnot, and maybe the sound producer or the engineer guy maybe thinking about the sound distribution and whatnot. So I think our appreciation of the world around us, it, it's its not tainted, but it's dif it differs, right? There's mm -hmm. a lens that we cannot switch off, like in your case, you know, you see the scaffolding, you're like... <laughs> um, it's, it's the same for me. I guess, and maybe this is just my personal theory, is that designers are inspired by the problems around them. And we typically feel frustrated when there are constraints mm -hmm. within what we can do to resolve those things. We enjoy exploring problems. Um, and maybe for, say for, for, in this case, for jobs that may be technical, for example, if I think of software development, uh, it's typically the opposite. You actually find confidence and inspiration and drive within, within a defined space for impact. I want to say a box, but there are boundaries to, mm -hmm. what, to, to the space where you can actually take an action on. Um, and then technical-minded technical people may be actually frustrated by problems. Because your job is to de-risk mm -hmm. and to ensure that this is working well, right? mm -hmm. and I think that's where that's where sometimes there may be uh, a little bit of friction, especially here coming to China, where the relationship maybe between designers and and, and maybe technical uh, technical folks will be a bit challenging at times. Because mm -hmm. for a designer, a technical folk will be another problem that a designer is excited to explore. Be like, <laughs> okay, let's figure it out. But for a technical folk, a designer is a problem, and you're wired to like remove problems and de-risk de right. your space for impact. Um, and obviously, behaviors and mindsets are, are slightly different. There's no good or bad. It's just a different approach to seeing things, different way of planning, communicating, getting things done. Uh, I guess the biggest takeaway that I've had from looking at this in uh, in China is understanding how these decisions are made is what has helped. Uh, I guess me as a as as a leader understand how to facilitate the right kind of decision support systems maybe for either teams or mm. for a company that is trying to maybe create new behaviors or, mm. or or a company that is trying to I don't know rewire their culture mm. so they um, so they are more fertile for innovation right where often that's the different ends that you have you have a technical side you have a non-technical side you have the creative edgy side. Right you're trying to make sure they don't kill each other and create new things. For you as an expat coming mm -hmm. in, um, do you, how do you, how do you, do you bring in something extra to the equation? So when I moved here, 2010, what I immediately realized is that back home, I had this constant stream of information coming through my ears, my mm -hmm. eyes, everywhere, and I could not avoid radio conversations, billboards, music, nothing. It was just a constant input. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I came here, it, it was an almost isolating experience because everything was just like white noise. I could not read the signs, I could not understand the conversations, I could not understand the music. And that isolation, in a way, uh, almost forced me to to understand things from 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 a different place. The inputs I was mm -hmm. getting from my environment were different. Um, and I guess you develop certain sensibility to, to things that I, I guess slowly fades away with time as, mm -hmm. as we begin understanding the language and get more you know, accustomed to the culture and so on, then we're part of it. I mean, we've been here for a long time, so mm -hmm. we know how it is. But coming back to the, to the present uh, answer, uh, I guess there are, as with luxury we spoke earlier, there are universal uh, 
principles, I guess, that hold true everywhere. Mm. And then there's obvious cultural nuances that may be functional, that may be experiential, that mm. may be symbolic. Uh, and understanding those nuances is what, what allows us to, to take a decision. Now, if multiple people walk into a room, um, some people may be able to identify those nuances uh, earlier than others, mm -hmm. simply because those nuances are foreign to me, mm -hmm. maybe, right? Um, so in a way, I don't want to say it's an advantage, but but it it adds it adds a different perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and in a place where you know we thrive so much on, on on collaboration that all these different perspectives will inevitably form a better better choice. So when we walk into a kitchen and, and do research and try and understand how people mobilize things and what are what's the system in a way they use, from how they move things to where they put things temporarily to mm. where they chop what this is being ready, that choreography is very informative. Because the moment we design something that gets in the way, we are forcing people to rewire 12 behaviors <laughs> around cooking something, right? So you cannot just like put an object that just looks cool and it's there. And if you go on Taobao right now, you can find a lot of like tabletop dishwashers that probably don't really do a good job. Yeah. Not because of the technology, because they don't clean the dishes, but because they're getting in the way, mm -hmm. in a way. They're breaking existing behaviors. They're not doing the mobile. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I guess there there are different there are different ways to try and almost stimulate those muscles for for identifying these things. There's this principle called uh, um, I forget the name of the principle, but it, it it speaks about these two ends of familiarity and repetition mm. uh, versus novelty and newness, and how you can train yourself to even maybe walk into a room and try to identify what's unique and new about this room that I've never seen anywhere before, right? Mm. Um, I've never seen in person this rod here where you can probably just put the little stair, yeah. you know, the, the ladder to go up, which you probably don't need because it's quite short. But you know what I mean? Like just trying to identify what's something in this room that I've never noticed before in another room right. just immediately stimulates a different way of observing, um, which is another very, very interesting point that I think we were talking about a while ago on, on learning mode and doing mode. Um, most, uh, I guess, of my, 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 my experience has, has been with uh, companies that sometimes struggle to find the switch between doing and learning. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're in doing, you're just like executing and do this, do that. Responding almost like a firefighter to a lot of things. Mm. But when you're in learning mode, you, the inputs you get from the world are different. You're almost invited to pay more attention, to, 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 to have more active listening, and to try to make sense of it, and to mm. try to almost challenge things. Like this rod, first thought is, is that for a curtain? It's not a curtain, it's to put a ladder. Why do you need a ladder? This is very short, so it's a decoration element. Mm. So in, in a very brief period of time, when you're in learning mode, you can quickly go through an exploration and, and you, you can examine the thing and you can arrive at a quick conclusion, which may be right or wrong, but at least being in learning mode will allow you to collect and grow new knowledge, mm. right? And maybe help you solve things in a different way. And so one of the things that we try and encourage uh, the organizations we work with to do is to uh, to create the right space for these behaviors to happen. Mm. Um, that's where often either, say, labs, for example, or outposts are very helpful because these are places where uh, you can try new behaviors, new ways to get things done that are almost foreign to your existing working culture. Mm. Uh, and most of the time, uh, a lot of this spawns from the fact that people need to be in learning mode. You will need to be given the permission or the incentives to be in learning mode versus uh, get the job done, right? Especially in big companies. That's especially in big companies, especially in China, when yeah. you move so fast. Yeah. You, you almost can't afford to be in learning mode. 
It was like, I'm going to go in learning mode. And then the market just like flashes in front of your yeah, eyes. Consumers yeah. won't wait for you, right? But, yeah, but, but, exactly. yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky balance to achieve. It's a tricky parallel to draw and fork out of your main company and maybe try and experiment with. That's the thing that I think people also, I mean, that, that, that consumers, uh, that people outside of China maybe don't fully grasp about China and yeah. the consumer market. And I'm sure it presents a design challenge for you as well, which is this is kind of need for instant, instant delivery, yeah. instant access. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and people are addicted to that. And people assume that across right. industries now, whether it's food delivery, yeah. Using a bike, where's where's the bike I want to go from point A to point B? Where's the bike right not right, right. here and right. I can just go? Yeah. That must present incredible design challenges for you. Yeah, totally, totally. I think for everybody, right? I think one way to, to look at it is to almost think into separate horizons. One is that long distance horizon where mm -hmm. you may have your mission statement or your value proposition or you know where you want to get to. Mm -hmm. The other one is the more kind of the one in the immediacy, the one that you can actually start running with almost right away. Um, I think most of the time this is clearly happening all the time for a lot of companies. It's like, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this. Uh, sometimes what's not too clear is why are you doing that? <laughs> Where are you going with that? Mm. Um, when you have a strong vision, when you have a strong horizon with that one little flag at the end of the thing, that can be very guiding. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like the question, like what, what needs to be true in the urgency I have in front of me to ensure that I keep training towards where I, where I need to get. Mm. Um, and obviously, how do, how do I build the right understanding of what I do here that gives me that evidence, that mm. tangible, measurable evidence that what I'm trying to get to is where my business should be. Um, so from a more practical perspective, the biggest challenges are timelines, compressed timelines. <laughs> um, and even before my time at IDEO, briefs that would be like, well, today's January, this product needs to launch in March. And I was like, well, that's two months to produce this. I don't think you can do it in time. Yeah. Um, but somehow, and this is interesting because there's, a, there's an external perspective uh, that I learned through colleagues of mine, that China is such a magical place because they are able to do things here when they are on a, say, on a project rotation, where we have teams that come mm -hmm. uh, and work, um, I don't know, for, for, a, for a couple of weeks here, right, as part of their, their research. They are surprised by the things that they can get access to here. Mm -hmm. You are able to very quickly prototype something. You are able to sketch something, very quickly design it, mm -hmm. and have a model ready to, to be tested with people all within the span of a few days. Mm -hmm. Um, or when you need to say even to print something like for me it's almost like impossible to imagine that I could not send a PDF and have a book ready in two days right outside it takes like two weeks <laughs> I, I can't imagine that no I cannot imagine that anymore because of the things that we get access to here sometimes we forget yeah it's only when we go outside that we're hit with this reality of mm. You know the difference in in what place in time maybe we feel we are in China versus the rest of of the world in certain things. So let's take it home with the question about companies coming here and small mm -hmm. companies coming here. We talked about how fast China moves, right. how nimble companies are here, yeah. um, how in how the consumers demand things instantly. 
if I'm a small foreign company trying to launch a product or my service mm -hmm. in China, how do I, do I engage you? What can I get out of engaging a designer like you and mm -hmm. kind of what part of the process, right. at what point in the process do I engage someone like you? What tips right. can you give them? Um, I think the first thing I would, I would say is like the foreign companies entering China for the first time would benefit from suspending their current beliefs or assumptions of what China is. Mm -hmm. There's an inevitable memory muscle of what China is. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, 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 that creates a lot of discomfort for companies that try to make it here. Um, I would say design research, understanding the market is probably paramount to everything. Understanding mm -hmm. truly people's behaviors and their, their mindsets, it's, it's quite crucial to understand how do you need to calibrate your your product or your communication or your marketing or even you know the platforms you choose um, to have a successful entry here. Mm. Um, another one is to I guess be very aware of the changing regulations. I think depending on what sector or industry, uh, the, there will always be uh, uh, a regulation around things here, mm. which is I mean it's 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 quite helpful to know those and it's quite helpful to navigate those because they can actually accelerate. Uh, your your entry into China and your mm. your impact in a way. Um, so, local partners definitely help. Mm. You know, um, setting up operations from scratch can be can be costly and can be daunting. Uh, that's why sometimes, uh, say, even joint joint ben joint ventures are out of mm. the entry entry mm. point for many companies. Um, I think it all begins, I guess, with with two things. One is understanding the market through people. Mm. Um, and the other one is understanding the players, like mm. who's winning, why are they winning, how long have they been around, what are they doing that is different, mm. and then maybe take those learnings and almost expose those learnings to your current home base, mm. uh, and then use those to understand what changes you need to do in your product, your service, your brand, maybe, yeah. before you maybe prototype or launch something here. And it's hard probably, there's probably very few cases where a, a product or a service can come over literally plug and play without any some localization yeah of the, exactly exactly of the design or something right? yeah exactly and 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 i think this goes back to the cultural nuances right uh so two examples two examples i can think of that that were uh, uh shared with me by, by by a colleague and a great friend um he spoke about the cultural nuances for example that lego had to to encounter when lego came here lego came with a brick you know the, the mm -hmm. product which was great um, but the role of uh, the role of play in China is different. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be an educational component because play for fun is not a big thing here. It's a waste Especially, of time. <laughs> you know, maybe I don't know. I mean, I'm a parent now, and I my no, kid plays all the us, time. But, but like, for, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. What you, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the cultural nuance was like that. The the, yeah. the role of, of of play, right, and the role yeah. of education, maybe. Um, and that's where Lego had to maybe without cultural nuance, they had to understand how to respond to that mm. before they came here. Uh, another example, maybe say, uh, Milkana. Milkana does the processed cheese uh, traditionally, right? Mm. Um, when you think of cheese in China, there's, there's, not, there's not too many places to go to after no. that, right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, the role of superfoods in, in children is quite quite big, right? Mm. And, the, and they're seen as a superfood, actually, mm. in China. So I think that's why you see Milkana actually produces these little kind of cheese lollipops for mm -hmm, kids mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are actually packed with a lot of interesting stuff. Like it's 
is, is not is not processed cheese. I mean, it is, but I, but the, the, what's packing in it is a response to that cultural noise, mm. right? So I think companies that understand that cultural noise will will begin to to maybe appreciate in a different way the, the, their new capabilities that they will be inevitably almost forced to develop here if mm. they were to try and respond to the market. And part of that uh, setup and, and finishing oh. to that setup, we have a tradition. Uh, the show is called Ganbei, so we like to do a little bit of toast. Ganbei in Chinese means toast. And um, so for our audience, we like to just sign off with a little toast. So thanks again, Momo, for coming. Thanks. Ganbei. To you. Ganbei. <laughs>